Gather round, take a seat, relax. It's the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Afton, right here on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Afton of Linksville Chill. Find ourselves time wise just over 24 hours before the onset of Tisha B'Av a day of sadness and a day of mourning and a day of hope and upliftment a very powerful moment in the Jewish calendar for thousands of years this has been the day that we focus on the calamities on the pain but again on the hope of this time of the year and of whatever has happened throughout our history. It's been a history that's been full of ups and full of downs, downs that lead to ups. Yerida Tzorech And that's really what we plug into at this time of the year. Feeling the low, but also realizing the high that came after the low. In our community, recently we've had some tragedies um, the community is currently reeling from the death of a young father, a young husband and son, and other tragedies. And whenever we go through this time, whenever we go through these challenges, it obviously causes a gut punch to so many of us. It's one of the most incredible things about this community is how tragedies of even people we don't know get deeply personalized and people really grieve but today I don't want to talk about a specific tragedy I want to talk about an interesting paradox whenever we deal with tragedy any kind of tragedy and that is the paradox of the mind versus the heart see the mind and heart of the human being talk very different languages most of us no, let, let me put it this way every one of us has a mind and heart but most of us will be dominant in one area we'll have a stronger IQ or a stronger EQ often people with very high IQ will struggle with their EQ um, often people with very strong emotional reactions will not necessarily be the most intelligent um, I'm not saying it's mutually exclusive, but often there's an imbalance in the potency of the, the two within people. Um, you don't think of most professors and philosophers as deeply emotional beings, and you don't think of uh, deeply emotional people um, often as being the most intellectual. Again, they're not mutually exclusive. There's a lot of people with high EQ which I guess is different than very deeply emotional, they can more read emotions, who could also have a very high IQ. But the point is, there are very different universes. And um, I think it's important to explore it, because often when we deal with tragedy, when we deal not only with tragedy, when we deal with any experience of being human, we address it on either one of the two planes, the intellectual front, or the emotional front. But rarely do we have an honest conversation which front we're addressing it from. 
um, right? Someone will ask a question, like, why do bad things happen to good people? Is that an emotional question, or is that an intellectual question? It could have a very different reaction based on what the question is. I would argue that most questions that come from life are emotional questions, right? There's an emotion that's triggering it. It's not, not, it's not simply curiosity. It's not the curiosity that says, why is grass green and the sky blue? It's different. A person has an experience. A person goes through something, goes through a wobble in their life, goes through an intense positive experience, and then questions. But they often frame their question as an intellectual one. But that's an intellectually dishonest way of presenting the question. Because if you're presenting it as an intellectual question, but then the person who's trying to answer it to you will answer it in an intellectual way. But that's not what you want, right? Can we be honest? That's not what we want. We want an emotional response. But the issue is, is there such a thing as a good emotional answer? Well, a good emotional answer might be a hug, might be empathy, might be looking into the eye, might be validation, compassion, sincerity. But that's a very different answer than an intellectual one. And it's only when we're honest what we're asking that we can begin the journey to find an answer. Let me take it in a different direction or get a different example. Let's think about faith in God. I don't believe in God, says the, the atheist or the agnostic. Prove it to me. Most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, that statement which seems to be framed as intellectual is not intellectual at all. Because once you start digging and you start asking the question, why don't you believe? It eventually leads to the point that says, I cannot believe in God that would allow the Holocaust. I cannot believe a God that would allow child abuse or death or tragedy. Is that an intellectual argument? Because intellectually we could discuss that. We could have an intellectual conversation about how a good God can allow tragedy to happen. But most people don't want to go there because the question was never intellectual in the first place, although they framed their um, ambivalence about God or their actually antagonism about God. They framed it as intellectual. But then you start throwing at them intellectual arguments and why I believe strongly that believing in a God um, more and more is more intellectually sound than actually not believing. Not despite science, but because of science. Just one small example. Up to 50, 60 years ago, the world, the scientific world accepted that the world never had a beginning. 
which basically the, disproved the whole narrative of the Bible that the world was created intentionally and had a beginning and had a designer. And then cosmology and various other fields of science and physics came to an understanding that the world had a beginning. And the world literally had, came something from nothing. And then all the questions were, how did that Big Bang happen? What happened? Who designed it? How did so much happen in a very split second? Because so, so much has been shown that an incredible amount of things had to happen in one billionth of a second after creation in order for the world to exist. Etc., etc. The point of my conversation now is not actually to prove that God exists. My point is that if somebody was willing to have an intellectual conversation without any emotion, I believe that faith has very strong intellectual basis. But rarely does somebody get convinced by it. Because rarely is someone's opinion about God intellectual it's emotional which is ironic because often people will say oh you believers the opium of the masses you believe in god just because it's an emotional crutch it's ironic because atheism is also a crutch it's as it's as convenient to believe that no one cares what you do and your life has no consequence than to believe that there's a god who actually designed the world with purpose and cares about everything you do and what you do matters it's a very different crutch, but they're both crutches, if you want to use that analogy. But the, to paint that one method, the atheist is purely intellectual and the believer is pur purely emotional, is, un is untrue. Because most conversations boil to emotions. That's why... Almost every argument eventually turns into red faces, screaming, shouting, pounding one another. Um, if it was an intellectual conversation, why are our emotions getting involved? Why is it getting personal? Why is it getting attacking? Why is it defensive? Defensiveness. Why are you getting defensive? It's an idea. It's either true or it's not true. Come with an open mind. So as you can see, where we're going with all this is most of the time we argue um, and we have conversations that we believe are intellectual, but they're not. They're emotional. And emotional has a very different plane. It, it does not tick by the same rules as intellect. It's not objective. It's not necessarily seeking the truth. It's subjective. It's seeking what resonates. It's seeking comfort. So when we face moments of intense tragedy, when we face calamity, similar to the time that we find ourselves in, or when we experience a communal tragedy, we have to be honest and ask ourselves, what am I looking for? Am I looking for an intellectual conversation? Or an emotional? If we're looking for intellect, 
I believe that a person can find a lot of peace. There are a lot of incredible works of Jewish philosophy and thought and exploration that talk about faith and trust in Hashem and how everything's by design, etc. And if that's what the person's looking for, I believe that the mind can, on the most part, find some framework to rest itself intellectually, right? The mind is always looking for a sensible place that it could actually settle, a philosophy that can um, ring true. That That's possible. That's very possible. But if it's an emotional piece that we're looking for, that's very different. That's very different. There, there are no answers, right? Moshe Rabbeinu, the smartest man, the one who gave us the Torah from God, who taught us, who led us out of Egypt, still cried out, God, why are you, why are you doing evil to this people? Which was mostly an emotional response. He knew that he didn't, would never understand an answer, or he wasn't interested in the philosophy of it. He was pained by the pain. And I think that we have to be able to walk that paradox, each and every one of us. We have to be able to try to find an intellectual basis of faith that can hold us up in hard times. But at the same time, the intellectual should never come on the expense of the emotional. The heart still has to feel. You can't walk into a house of mourning and say, oh, whatever, guys, you know, God runs this world, so just get over it. Often you hear people saying very inappropriate things in houses of mourning, just trying to remove the pain. And they're bringing an intellectual argument, often not even a sound intellectual argument, but let's say for argument's sake that's a sound intellectual argument. They're bringing it into the space which is not calling for intelligence. It's calling for emotion. And read the room, people. If that's what's needed, if that's what's needed is emotion, then allow yourself to feel and allow yourself to share in the pain, to walk with them together in the pain. This is Rabbi Levi Avtson, and this is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM. The song Eicha, Eicha, the famous words, that we read on the Tisha B'Av Eve. It's one of the books of the Tanakh, one of the Megillot um, that we read, Megillas Echa, uh, written by Jeremiah, the, pro- the prophet, even before the temple was destroyed, but he's describing what it's going to feel like. And that imagery is haunting and uplifting. And... That's the paradox. You could be emotionally broken, intellectually uplifted. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Yatsin. And we're really exploring the, the great paradox. I believe it's one of the greatest paradoxes of life. And that is the, the mind versus the heart journey in every area of our lives to really be able to find some serenity in this unbelievable um, dichotomy that 
we are both emotions and we have a mind. If we were just emotions, we would be an animal. Animals are very emotional. In Hebrew, the word for a dog is kelev, which is a makeup of two words. Kulolev, fully heart, entirely heart. That's why people love their pets. It's pure love, uncomplicated by the mind. If you're just a mind, you're a robot. You're a computer. It's a brain. Somehow that bridge of the two allows for the unique makeup of the human being. And obviously each one of us has our own disposition, our own brain, our own heart, the way they interact with each other. It's almost impossible for one to work without the other, right? It's almost impossible for a person to be 100% intellectual without any emotional bias. Um, even the greatest scientists will often have bias um, because it's very hard to avoid it. It's there. It just is. And even the most emotional human being, um, there's some logic there. <laughs> Sometimes we're looking hard to find it, right? Come on, can we talk some logic? But it's, it's, there's always some there. And it's the makeup of the two. But when we are there for each other, and when we hold each other's hand, we have, always have to remember, what role am I playing? Am I there for you emotionally? Am I there for you intellectually? What do you need from me? As a rabbi, I find myself quite torn often, because somehow when I show up into a space, especially in a place of intense emotional trauma, they see me as somewhat representing, you know, the word of the Lord. Um, it's a huge, a huge task. Sometimes I'm not even sure if that's an accurate description of what a rabbi is, but sometimes I just have to embrace that that's the way they see me. And the first word they'll say, Rabbi, how can this happen? And they look at you expectantly that some words are going to come out of your mouth, some sage wisdom. But really, what do I know? I'm not God's defense attorney. doesn't talk to me. doesn't tell me um, why certain things happen. He, does, he has spoken to me through the Torah, just like he's spoken to each and every one of us. And he's given basic guidelines. But I have no idea why certain things happen. And any person who does is arrogant and wrong. I get personally very angry when there's a tragedy in the community or globally and suddenly people who claim to be people of God are rushing to explain why things happen. And you're like, whoa, take it easy. The hurricane happened because of this and the house collapsed because of that and the fire happened because of that. If only people were more religious, if people davened better, if people were dressed more modestly, if people spoke less and less, less and hard. You can offer this a suggestion. We could all have suggestions, right? We all have to grow after a tragedy. We all have to take heart and say, how can I do better? But not because we know with any definite sense that X happened because of X. We don't know the causality of anything. Unless God talks to you and you're some prophet. I've said it before on the show that it says in the Talmud that after the destruction of the temple, Nevuah nitna prophecy was given for fool, to the fools, to the idiots. 
And I often wonder when people sit there coming and saying things with absolute certainty, this happened because of this. And you're like, are you trying to tell us you're a fool? Are you trying to declare to all? What are you trying to say? In other words, are you trying to tell us that you're an idiot? Um, when people say, South Africa is going to go here and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. You're like, who told you that? Does God talk to you at night? Do you really know what the future holds? What are you talking about? I find it mind-boggling for anybody to sincerely talk about the future or why things happen with absolute certainty as if God spoke to them. God did not speak to any of us in any certain terms saying this happened because of that. God wants us to explore. God wants us to grow. God wants us to do better. But in no way should any of us feel that we have a monopoly to talk on behalf of God. We don't. If we want to talk on behalf of God, do this. Follow God's way. Just like he is compassionate, you be compassionate. Just like he is kind, you be kind. You be a, a, an incredible version of God's behavior, of God's values. That's what God asks. Follow in his ways. But to talk on his behalf, to explain him, just be there for each other. Hold each other's hands with kindness and empathy. Just be there for one another. That's all God asks of us. That's all life asks of us. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And together let's walk in the way of Hashem. We're not here to explain God to each other. We're not here to intellectualize grief. Definitely not at the moment of tragedy. There's a time for it. There's a time to talk about it, but not when it hurts. When it hurts, as they say in Yiddish, when it hurts, Schleitman, we scream. If it hurts, we scream. We tend to forget that what we need from each other is very straightforward. Ava, love. Each year we remember that two temples were destroyed about 500 years apart. The first temple was destroyed for the worst sins imaginable. Idolatry, adultery, murder, absolute societal decay, moral decay. That destruction lasted for 70 years. 70 years later, the Jewish people came back and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple. And that temple lasted for hundreds of years until it came and was destroyed. And this time it was destroyed, Sinat Chinam. Hatred. Baseless hatred. Baseless hatred doesn't mean hatred that doesn't have a reason. It means hatred that doesn't have a good reason. And almost no hatred has good reasons. Right? Everyone had good reasons why they hated. Nobody just walks around saying, oh, I hate you. You always have a good reason. The person's a fraud. I don't like their energy. Um, they didn't invite me to their grandson's cousin's bar mitzvah. There's always a good reason why you hate. Baseless hatred doesn't mean that it's hatred without a reason. It means it's hatred for an immature reason. And most hatred is immature. 
hate, most hatred is petty. Most hatred comes from selfishness. Most hatred comes from seeing myself as the center of the universe. And that can never lead to happiness. That can never lead to joy. That can never lead to unity. And that temple, the temple that was destroyed because we couldn't get along, because we all had great reasons to hate each other, that temple's been destroyed for 1953 years. It's a long time, friends. And no matter what, it still seems to be the greatest challenge for us to get along. Not to agree, but to get along. I grew up in the under the influence, the positive influence of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I was a young child when he passed away, but his world was the world I grew up in. And the Rebbe was a f- for many things, but he was very opinionated. You know, some great leaders are not that opinionated, they're just people of love. There's no strong opinions. The Rebbe wasn't that person. He was extremely opinionated. He had strong opinions because he cared about the truth. And despite his opinions, or maybe because he understood what opinions are and what they aren't, he never made it personal. Never made it personal. It was all about getting along. It was all about ahava. He would never attack a person personally. If he spoke about something, he spoke about the idea. Maybe even spoke about the motive but never about the person. That's love. Love is that I still see you as created in God's image. I still see you as my partner in God's world, even if we fundamentally disagree on how to navigate this world. We disagree. Mazel tov. Chances are I'm talking right now and something I'm saying you're disagreeing with. That's fine. Whenever I teach students in high school, or I always say, I'm not here to get you to agree with me. That would be quite boring. And also, I'm going to lose my originality if everyone agrees with me, right? I still want to have something to say. That's just a joke. Um, no, like, we're just here to generate thoughts. What do you think about that? How about see it from a fresh, different perspective? What do you? But never to dictate thoughts, to have conversations. But we can only have these conversations if we don't assume that the other person is is the devil, and we don't assume that the other person's evil, and that we're forgiving. In in my years as as a rabbi, I've been so privileged to see some of the most incredible stories of forgiveness. People who literally were neglected by their parents and yet they forgave their parents, allowed their parents um, the courtesy of walking them down the aisle even though the parent was totally not present in their life. I've seen people being able to forgive a sibling for something that seemingly, at least at first glance, is unforgivable. I've seen people just with generosity of spirit 
you might have even heard that story of um, a fellow who was able to forgive a guy who stole his exit tickets outside that would have helped him escape the Holocaust. I'll actually share that story after the break. This is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 High FM. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtson of Linksfield Shul. And just before the break, I reference a story. You can actually find it online um, from Rabbi Yoel Gold. He tells the story of this fellow who's in the 60s, 70s, and he comes to visit his grandchild in camp. And as he's walking around the camp, he notices another person about his age, and he gives him a nod as in acknowledging who he is. So the son-in-law and daughter of this individual who were with him, basically this guy was visiting his granddaughter, and the parents and grandfather had come to visit. So the daughter and son-in-law turned to their father, and they say, who was that person? He's like, ah, leave it. What do you mean, leave it? Who was that guy? He's like, ah, he was a friend from before the war. So they say, oh my gosh, he was a friend before the war. Why don't you go hug him and kiss him? He says, no, leave it. So they said, no, 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 no. What is going on? I mean, you see a guy that, you know, because they knew their grandfather, their father was a Holocaust survivor. So what's the story? So he tells them he was living in Romania at the time, I believe. And he had managed to get exit visas that would help him get to the other side of the country and then eventually get out of Europe. And the day before he was supposed to leave, he was having a conversation with his best friend. And he was telling him, oh, you know, I have tickets and uh, they're in my hiding place. And it was just because he trusted his friend and only his friend knew about that hiding place. The next day he shows up to pick up the things and the hiding place is open. In other words, that safe was broken into and uh, all the stuff are gone and his friend's gone. And um, basically his friend decided to save himself on his expense. And this guy now didn't have a way out. He was sent to the camps, lost his wife, lost a child or two, and uh, managed to survive the war and came over to America and rebuilt. So in the video where the family sharing the story, they're like, they turn to their father and they say, if now, if till now we were wondering why you're not hugging him, now we're wondering why you're not punching him in the face or screaming at him and shouting at him. What do you mean? Like you greeted the guy, you gave the guy a nod. The guy allowed your whole family to be destroyed. And he looks at them and he says, guys, leave it. It was a different time. People were desperate to do whatever they can to save themselves. I'm not here to judge. Well, not I'm not his best friend anymore, obviously. But leave it. Leave it. Could you imagine living like that? Could you imagine living like that? Just forgive. Just walk into this world and forgive. I've... You know, I'm actually recording this um, on the way to a funeral. Sorry for the little noise in the background. Wasn't able to uh, find the quiet time from a shiver house to a funeral back to another shiver house. Unfortunately, it's that time of the year. Um, I've done way too many funerals where children didn't come to their parents' funeral. 
siblings didn't come to their siblings' funeral. It's actually sickening. And everyone has good reasons. Everyone has good reasons, right? One person one time, when they're referring to their sibling, they say they're my ex-sibling. Everyone has good reasons for it, right? But in my mind, maybe I'm naive and stupid and silly, and I don't know what's going on in the real world, but I cannot, in my mind, ever justify calling a sibling an ex. I cannot, in my mind, ever justify not going to a parent's funeral. I'm sorry, there's no justification on earth. They gave you life. They're your blood. No one's saying you have to be their best friend. No one's saying you have to call them every single day, although that would be nice. No one's saying you have to love them. But to not, to not, to not to shiver for somebody? Huh? How? What? When? How, how, how do we understand that? It's unforgivable in my mind. Call me judgmental. And maybe I am judging. I'm not judging the people. I'm sure they had good reasons. Maybe they even got advice from wise people not to go. It's still a bridge too far. It's a, it's, it's, it's a red line that we cannot cross. We have to be more forgiving. We could talk about world peace till we're blue in the face. Why can't Russia and Ukraine get along? And China and Taiwan. And why are we so xenophobic to immigrants in our country? And when is anti-Semitism going to stop? And when is racism going to stop? And when is this phobia going to stop? And that phobia going to stop? All nice. Stop talking about global problems. When are you going to forgive every person in your heart? Forgive doesn't mean that you tolerate their nonsense. You manage it. Doesn't mean you have to become their best friends. There's different layers of relationship. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean that suddenly everybody becomes your best friend and your favorite person on earth. That's nonsense. But it does mean that you find it in your heart to forgive and to realize life is not about my grudges. Life is not about my pettiness. Life is too short for narishkeit, for silliness, for self-centeredness. For putting myself at the center of the universe. Oh, everybody has to worry about me and my feelings. Me, fragile person. No. We get hurt. We work through it. And we forgive. And get over it. And be bigger. We cannot heal a nation if we cannot heal our heart. We cannot heal the heart of the universe. We cannot bring world peace if we cannot have peace in our heart. It's ironic how many people running around trying to bring the world peace and yet they fight with their own family. You cannot heal the world if you cannot heal yourself. You cannot bring peace if you cannot find serenity within yourself. You cannot build a temple on the mount if we cannot build the temple in our heart. That's where it starts. That's what matters. That's what God asks of us. He doesn't ask us to be revolutionaries and change the world. He just asks, heal your heart. Clean it from jealousy, from begrudging other people's success. Just be good. Love. Forgive. Be kind. Stop the nonsense. Stop the smallness. We're sometimes, as human beings, we're sometimes so big 
And sometimes we're just so small. You know, I'm driving now, as I record this, I'm driving on the road, and um, just a few days ago, I was driving the same road to the cemetery at West Park, and um, I was following behind about 60, 70, I don't know, 100 ambulances that were going to escort uh, Chaim Saki, the, the young father and husband who passed away. Um, and I managed to just, I don't know, I was going to the funeral and I get, managed to get into the, <laughs> into the whole uh, entourage. And I remember driving this very road as I'm driving, um, sobbing, just thinking about how big of a gesture that was. They were literally just, uh, I'm sure if you and Joe Brick, you heard about it, just such an act of love towards him. Um, but also the bigness of his heart. He managed to touch people in such a quiet way. He wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't loud. He just did. 